and Pogba leaves for McTominay! Magnificent! Torres, he's done it again! He has fizzed that into the bottom corner. Vardy for Chowdhury. And set for Madison! Alisson saw Salah running from his own half, so onside here, Mo Salah. Salah to settle it! In front of the cop! There's no feeling like that feeling! And now you've got to believe them. You have got to believe them. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the 3PL podcast. Again, a big shout out to everyone who continues to listen and support the podcast every week. We really appreciate it. And yeah, let's get straight into it. Starting at Villa Park on Friday night. And Villa came into it unbeaten. Big results already this season. And then Leeds rock up and absolutely smashed them, to be honest. It was a comfortable victory for Leeds. And yeah, Patrick Bamford, what a performance from him. A hat-trick, first Premier League hat-trick for him. Really, really good performance from Leeds. And yeah, I'm not sure I, I saw this one coming. Yeah, Bamford really surprised me and has been surprised me all season so far. His finishing was incredible, especially his final two goals. They were both wonderful finishing. Grealish looked the only dangerous player on the Villa side. He had one moment where he could have scored one of the goals of the season. I would have loved it if he'd pulled it off. But apart from that, they were really, really poor Villa. They lacked any creativity. Barkley couldn't really get into the game. And I thought Ollie Watkins was a bit of a non-entity, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah, I think for Villa, it was probably a game of sort of what could have been for them. There was a couple of moments where they, they definitely could have and should have scored, really. On another day, those goals go in and it's a completely different game. But fair play to Leeds. They, um, well, really, fair play to Bamford, you've got to say, because he, he pretty much got that victory for them single-handed with the goals that he scored. Um, as you said, two excellent goals. I I feel, for me, this is maybe the turning point in the season for Villa. I know it's very early in the season to be saying that, but I view it as a bit of a rude awakening for them. They've been on a high. That win against Liverpool, obviously, was hugely emphatic, and they went on and got another good result after that. I'm not sure that they're going to be able to sustain that, and I think I, I sort of alluded to what, I was, what I'm was what i saying in last week's um, episode, where I said I, I felt like Leeds could get something from this. I really feel like this could be the end of the, the good run for Villa and we could start to see their sort of slide back down to where they probably really belong towards the bottom of the table. Yeah, I'll let everyone in on a bit of inside information, but um, Peter put on a bet after this game, suggesting that Aston Villa are going to get relegated at the end of the season. So you've got pretty good odds on that one. I'm not sure it's going to be quite that bad for Aston Villa this season. Yes, it wasn't the best performance from them, but they've, I think they've shown enough already this season that they probably will be competitive in a lot of matches. Maybe they got a little bit overconfident in this game. Maybe they weren't expecting what Leeds were bringing to the table and Leeds just exploited those weaknesses. But either way, yeah, I think there are these two teams going opposite ways in the table at the moment. I also think with 12 points already, Fulham might be even struggling to make that mark. <laughs> a long way off. Very true. And just one note after this game, it took Bamford up to six goals and one assist on the season, which is, funnily enough, identical to Pukki's record for Norwich last year. So, um... Yeah, Leeds will definitely be hoping that the goal scoring continues and doesn't dry up like it did with, with Pukki last year. Right, next up, we'll move on to West Ham. Some great form coming into this game. Playing Man City, you wouldn't expect them to get a result, but they did. Uh, one all draw, an impressive draw, actually. And yeah, you must be pretty happy with that one, Peter. Yeah, very happy. Um, I'd have been happy with any sort of result from this game, to be honest. And I thought, actually, at points, I thought we were sort of maybe deserve the win at moments. I know Man City had a, a huge amount of the possession, a lot of the ball, but I think we contained them really well. And when we did get forward and, and counter-attacked against them and put the pressure on them, we, we looked like really, really threatening, especially Antonio again, just absolutely running the show for us. And unfortunately, that was the one thing that kind of put a dampener on my high spirits after the game was Antonio having to go off with what looked like a recurrence of his previous hamstring injuries which we know have been a, a long-term issue for him again and again he's been out injured with those and for sometimes he's been out for a really long period of time which we just got to hope that's not the case again because at the moment the whole team is set up to work around Antonio to, to counter-attack with him and he holds the ball up well and, and causes defenders problems. Without him, it's a completely different side. And we saw that when Yarmolenko came on and just could not replicate what he'd been doing. So moving on to the next weeks, we've got to hope that Antonio's not out for any long period of time. Otherwise, it could be a big issue for us, I think. Yeah, hopefully it was more of a 
precaution than a full-on injury. He's been going from strength to strength this season. He reminds me a lot of how Jogba plays. Um, he's strong, powerful up top, finishing, which has really come on a long way this season. Um, we saw it a little bit after post-lockdown, and it's even more so now. He just seems to be coming the f- like full article up front. It's great to see. On the other side, I wonder what you guys think about Pep and where City are at the moment, because they seem a long way off the pace to me. They, they're they slowing, they're passing, they look very lethargic in ways, and I, I'm worried about them, and I'm worried about Pep. Yeah, there was some worrying signs in this game, especially if I was a Man City fan. The fact that Ruben Diaz, the signing we've brought in for 60 million, got bullied off the ball um, for Antonio's first goal. Didn't look like he had the strength to hold off Antonio, which I think says a lot about more Diaz than Antonio. And then, yeah, Man City in the first half just didn't look to create that many chances. You have a Aguero starting his first game back for Man City in the Premier League. Looked very off the pace, in my opinion. And then Mahrez and Sterling didn't really offer too much going forwards either. And that's either a result of Man City not being quite on it this season or, or just how well West Ham have set up with that back five to deal with these attacking wingers who have in the past been so dangerous to deal with. Another worrying sign for Man City is that Aguero also came off at half-time and looks like he's picked up a reoccurrence of his injury, which means City are now without a striker again. So, yeah, all in all, worrying, worrying times, I think, for Man City and for Pep. Yeah, I wonder if, if some of the blame lands at his feet. He seems to have rushed Aguero back from injury, and we already know he's quite an injury-prone player. And for him to be put immediately back into the Premier League and starting from the start of the games, he, we've already seen he's picked up a knock very quickly. It's worrying times. And also, the team altogether, he doesn't usually stay with a club for that long. And I wonder if his time at Man City is starting to come up. Um, is this possibly a season too far for him? Yeah, maybe. Um, one interesting fact from this game is that it's the first, I think it was the first time that Pep Guardiola named an unchanged team in probably God knows how many matches. I think it was the exact same starting eleven that he had last weekend. And yeah, I think the only positive that Man City can take from this game is that Phil Foden came on and, and caused a lot of problems for West Ham. But generally, when you're looking for a team performance and you don't produce one, and it's only Phil Foden that comes out of any kind of credit at the end, you must be pretty disappointed. Yeah, definitely. It's very rare that you see a team with the squad depth and quality of squad that City have relying on a player as young as Foden to come on and change the game. And to be fair to him, he did come on and he completely changed the game for them. When Aguero went off at halftime, to be honest, I thought it was a tactical change from Pep. But obviously, we now know that it was an injury to Aguero that, that meant he brought on Foden. But really, Foden's put himself in a great position to now be turning around to Pep and saying, well, look, I, I should be starting these games, especially with De Bruyne obviously coming back from injury now, but is he fully fit? Is that another player that Pep's maybe rushing back in? Foden showed what he can do and he's shown that he can take control of the game and lead it from the middle and be that instrumental player for them. So if I was him, I would be feeling like I, I've, I've shown what, what I need to do to actually be become one of their main starting players now. And that could be really exciting from an England point of view as well. Um, if Foden then manages to develop around all those players and become one of the best players in the league, could be a good time for, for him in the England squad as well. Yeah, providing he behaves himself well international duty, I'm sure he'll force his way back into the England team at some point. Right, moving on to probably, actually, it's probably definite at this point, the worst team in the Premier League at the moment, Fulham, taking on Crystal Palace. And yeah, I guess this game kind of went to plan for Crystal Palace at least playing on the counter-attack, getting two goals almost against the runner play, Fulham with a large amount of possession, but Palace just seemed to have that cutting edge, unlike Fulham, and, and got the win that way, really. And when you have a player of Zaha's quality, he's always going to create things for you, no matter how little you go forwards, as, as Palace don't. But yeah, I think this is more, more a sign of Fulham being poor than Palace being good. So yeah, probably a scoreline that flatters Palace a bit. Yeah, Fulham were awful again in this match. Um, Lookman looking like the only bright spark in their whole side. It's worrying times for them and worrying times for a Fulham fan. And Parker himself, he his head. He must be thinking, am I about to lose this job? Because we, as we know in the Premier League, it's very cutthroat. And to have got off to a start like this in the Premier League, it can't take them long for those owners to be thinking, chops happening. Yeah, definitely worrying signs for Fulham. I think the from a Crystal Palace point of view, this was the perfect game for them to have um, following the struggles they had against Brighton the week before. We saw how much they struggled to create chances and 
think, as I said last week, they didn't have a single shot on goal from open play um, against Brighton. This game, they were much more involved in in attacking and, and getting the ball uh, towards the, the Fulham goal. They will have been really pleased to see Fulham next up on the schedule because with the way Fulham have played, they're the team that everyone wants to play at the moment. Um, they're really, really struggling. They don't look like they can compete against any other team in the Premier League. Palace, a, a team that haven't looked dominant really in any of the games they've played. I think, Angus, you were very critical of Palace's style of play a couple of weeks ago, and I completely agree with you. Fulham made them look like a world-class team <laughs> at some points this game. So that's really, really worrying times for them. And I think you're probably right. Unfortunately, you'd probably have to say Scott Parker potentially odds-on favourite to be the next to to be sacked. So moving on to our next game of the weekend, which was Man United-Chelsea. For me, this was a game of two managers who knew that they couldn't afford another heavy defeat this season. Otherwise, that, that sort of prospect of losing their job was definitely on the the horizon. It was a pretty dull game, wasn't it? Not much happened. The The main talking point from what I could tell was the Harry Maguire potential penalty incident, which for me is a penalty all day long. Don't know how that didn't get given. Probably the first major controversial VAR decision that we saw this weekend. Yeah, I thought we were going to have a weekend without too much VAR controversy, but then four games in and already you have one that's all over the news, all over everywhere, really. And people talking about why it wasn't given, why it didn't go to VAR. I don't really understand quite what happened because I think to everyone who watched it on the replays, it was a stonewall penalty. I mean, Maguire was just all over Aspilicueta, prevented him from getting anywhere near the ball and almost like hugged him. It was like a wrestling move, just like hugged him into submission and, and nothing got given. And it was very, very strange because... Up until this point in the Premier League, pretty much everything that happens in the in the penalty box is going to be penalised. But this was like a, a glaring mistake for me. And the fact the referee didn't even ask the question or get told any information from the VAR officials seems very, very strange. Yeah, if there's ever a chance for them to use the pitch side monitor, this was it. Um, like Peter said, very dull game. Sadly, all our predictions were way off the mark this week. All wanting big scores and we were... Sadly mistaken. Um, Mendy's already looking like a big upgrade on Kepa. Um, another solid performance. And I think Chelsea fans have got probably going to start feeling a lot more confident watching him in goal. In terms of United, though, they're way down there at the bottom of the league. Yes, the Premier League is very tight and results can swing quickly. But as it stands, in my eyes, I think they deserve to be where they are in the standard of their performances. No, they really don't. They've not They've not come into this season with the kind of form that we probably thought they would. Last weekend, I would have said the opposite. I thought it looked like they'd started to pick up their form. Um, but this weekend was sort of back to where they were a couple of weeks before, just really looking like they were going to struggle. Just going back very quickly onto that VAR decision again, the one really interesting thing that I saw um, since the game was that the the actual appointed video assistant referee for this game was the same referee I forget the name but it was the same guy who gave who gave a, a penalty for a holding offence um, in the penalty area last weekend which was a much softer decision than this weekend so that brings into question even more so why he didn't give this one and I think it just throws even more question into whether the the referees that are being put in those positions are being given the right guidance on where when to give those decisions because it doesn't seem like there's any consistency week in week out and if we're going to have VAR, we need to have consistency. Otherwise, you may as well go back to just allowing the referee to make the decision on the field. I know that's sort of a maybe a slightly extreme way of viewing it, but without the consistency of all the decisions across every single game, you can see why fans are going to carry on getting frustrated and upset with the decisions that go against them. Yeah, for me, it wasn't even just strange decisions on behalf of, of the referee. I thought it was very, very strange seeing the team teams come out when they did. I thought United were guaranteed to go with some of the players that performed so well in the week against PSG. I mean, Twan Zebe apparently had the best game in a Manchester United shirt. He managed to keep Mbappe quiet. And, you know, look at other players who performed in that game, like Tellez, um, De Beek as well, apparently played really well. And then they all got dropped for this game. So had Mata and James on the wingers again, which just seems a little bit counterintuitive when you've got your team playing well against a very good team in Europe. And then you're resorting back to to playing the team that struggled the weekend before. Um, yeah, I don't know about Oli and his decision-making, but something's got to change for United because if the goals dry up, yeah, you, you don't think he's got too much longer in that job, really. So, from one game with a dodgy VAR decision to another, the Liverpool-Sheffield United game, 2-1, and 
one of the strangest penalties decisions I've seen in a very long time. I personally still don't think it was a penalty. It didn't seem to be in the box. And I think he made the ball. I don't know what you guys have made of it, but to me, it definitely seemed a mistake. See, I'm actually going to completely disagree with you on that one. I thought it was a penalty. I saw a really good analysis of it on Twitter over the last couple of days. I've been looking into a few of these decisions to try and get a better view of what has been given and what hasn't. Um, My understanding of it is, I think, one of the reasons that a lot of people looked at it and thought it didn't look like it was in the box was because of how far the ball was outside of the box. But the player was in, had his foot on the line at the time that the contact was made. And therefore, because the line forms part of the penalty box, that was therefore within the penalty area. At that point, obviously, the referees and uh, the, the VAR, sorry, have then got to look at whether it's a, a foul or not. Yes, he got the ball, but he also went through the player and obviously impacted that player's ability to win the ball as well. So I think probably in this in this occasion, I do think the right decision was made. I agree it wasn't necessarily a clear-cut one, and the fact that we had to look at it so many times to establish that means you know, there's obviously still going to be debate around it, and that also feeds into other people's frustrations about it, about VAR. But I actually think on this occasion the right decision was made, and I think Sheffield United rightly got the penalty that they deserved in that situation. See, I really struggle with it. He made the ball first and then and then went through the player. That's that's allowed. As long as you're not going through with your studs. If you get the ball first, you can make contact with the player. It's still a contact sport as far as I'm aware. So I, I, it just doesn't sit well with me. I think we're neutralising the game by doing this type, making this type of decision where week on week we're seeing really soft penalties. This one I wouldn't say is soft in terms of the tackle. It was a hard and physical tackle. But I think he made the ball first. And it was very touch and go on the line. Not for me. Not for me. I still think that the the one thing that is worth bearing in mind with all of these sort of these soft penalty decisions that we're seeing, I always find it helpful to think about if that tackle happened anywhere else on the pitch, would I think that a free kick would be given? And in that situation, I 100% think a free kick would have been given every time with the way that he went in for the ball there. Um, so, yeah, and obviously it's one of those decisions that's going to divide opinion. But I, I think... As I said, I think it probably was the right decision on this occasion, but I can definitely see why there's there's other opinions out there. Yeah, I'm going to play it safe and go um, in between both of your statements. I think it, <laughs> I can definitely see why it was given, but equally I can see why you'd be upset if it was given against you. Maybe it's because it was Fabinho and Fabinho wasn't really used to playing centre-back, didn't know what tackle to make in that situation, didn't know if it was the right thing to do or not. And ultimately, I think he's found out the hard way that he's he can't really make tackles like that in and around the penalty box because they will go to the AR and they will get given. But credit to Sheffield United. They, they stepped up, took the penalty, and they looked pretty comfortable for most of the first half, to be honest. They did a good job of holding out Liverpool. And when Liverpool did get their equaliser, it was quite fortuitous, really, because the shot came in. Um, it was parried out by Ramsdale. And unfortunately, just Firmino was lurking right there to, to tap it in. But on another day, it might go past Firmino and they hold on till half-time. But... I think the fact they didn't hold on to half-time made the second half very difficult for them. And then Salah gets his his goal ruled offside, which was a very close decision as well, but he was marginally off. And then, yeah, like two minutes later, I think it was, that um, they get the goal through Jota, who's proving to be more than just a bench player this season, um, popping up with the goal and a really big goal as well because it won them the game. Yeah, I probably have to concede that I was maybe wrong about Jota. I think I remember saying I, I didn't really see where he fits into that Liverpool team, why he was really making that move. But he's actually got a decent amount of game time so far. And when he has played, he's looked like a really important player for them. So, you know, maybe there was really good reason behind why they went for him, um, which we obviously, well, I personally didn't see that. But yeah, he's done really well. Um, obviously, another win for Liverpool, continuing the, their good start to the season with the exception, obviously, of that freakish Aston Villa result that happened early on but it's the kind of result that we saw Liverpool getting the wins in last season when they weren't necessarily the better team in the first half but they came out with the three points the other side so they'll be hoping they can carry on that form now into their next few games they've obviously got West Ham up next at the weekend so they'll be hoping that they don't suffer the same fate as Man City did and they'll be hoping they get the three points again. Yeah it was an important result for Liverpool after the Van Dijk injury and all the media they've had all week surrounding it so I think they did very well to keep their heads especially going one goal down and battling their way back in talking of the Merseyside derby from last week we have Everton up in our next game against Saints and I can't think of a better performance from Southampton in a very long time it was solid all the way through the game just brilliant and I'm sure Matt's got lots to say yeah it was it was one of the more convincing victories I've seen from Southampton especially at home 
We're not used to winning games comfortably. We're not used to keeping clean sheets, not used to scoring goals. And all three of those things happened in this game. Yeah, I thought Everton looked a bit off-key from the very start. They didn't seem to play the same fluid passing that they, they had been playing this season. And I think we did a really, I think we were set up really well in this game to prevent that from happening. Got into their wing players or their wide players really early with Bertrands and Walker-Peters almost marking Rodriguez and Awobi out of the game, leaving Calvert-Lewin very isolated. And I think he only ever had two touches in our penalty box the whole game, which is which speaks absolute volumes about how how well we played. Um, a player that's probably the most informed player this season. And actually, the first goal that we scored in this game, James Ward-Prowse on the 27th minute, was really, really well worked. I think a lot of people missed it in this in this country because of the, the footage of it, because they were showing a replay from a shot just seconds earlier. But then the ball ends up at James Ward-Prowse's feet and he absolutely smashes it past Pickford. I don't think, you know, you can put too much blame on Pickford for not saving this one. But yeah, it was a really good move, worked from the throw-in. And yeah, credit to Ward-Prowse because I didn't know he could hit the ball that hard. But um, yeah, he went 1-0 up. And then 10 minutes later... Shea Adams gets his goal as well. And then we're 2-0 up at half-time. And, and after that, we just didn't look worried at all. And um, yeah, the only talking point in the second half was a pretty horrible tackle from Digne. On the red card decision, I've seen a lot of pundits going against it, saying, oh, they're not sure about it, that it's just one of those accidents which happened in the game. And in my eyes, I think they're completely wide off the mark. Um, moments before, Dean was trying to tack- bring him down, couldn't get hold of him, chases him down, and then... In my eyes, it was a very cynical and dirty tackle. I think he, he knew what he was doing. We all know how to play off something to make it look innocent. But in my eyes, it was dirty, it was dangerous, and it could have been a season ender. Very much on the same lines as Van Dyke was last week. It was on his Achilles. and Achilles injuries can be horrific, especially for a footballer. Yeah, I was really surprised to see today that the ban has been reduced to a one-match ban from a three-match ban. I have to completely agree with you, Angus. I thought... Those are the kind of tackles that I do want to see a red card and a three-match ban for because it was it was cynical. There was, in my opinion, there was intent to injure the other player, which is something you never want to see from any player in the league. And it was, I think it just came out of, it was clearly that it just came out of frustration, uh, not being able to win the ball back and frustration with the way the game was going. And those are the kind of tackles that I think really should be punished because they can be something that can maybe not, career ending or season ending but they can be the kind of tackles that can take a key player out for a number of weeks and that can have a massive impact on the team that suffers that so completely unfair I think that that's been reduced to a one match ban for for Luca Dean I think that's a really really strange decision there yeah I have to agree I'd love to meet the person that makes the decisions behind the scenes who decides that wasn't a a tackle worthy of a three match ban instead but um yeah just crazy and I think it was more out of frustration than anything else for for Dean and, and for Everton because they had been outplayed for almost the entire game up until that point. And then, you know, this tackle is almost just summed up all the frustration that they were feeling and, and he got sent off. And yeah, to me, just it was a really off performance from Everton the whole way through. I didn't think Hamas Rodriguez was fully fit, didn't play anywhere near the levels that he's been playing the first couple of weeks of the season. And having a Wobi as your replacement on the left wing instead of Richarlison just shows just what they're lacking in terms of squad depth because he just doesn't offer the exact same threat that Richarlison does, like nowhere near it. So... Yeah, I think Ancelotti uh, after the game was very, very bitter about this defeat because he he didn't agree with the red either. But yeah, for me, it was just a really, really good performance from Southampton and that's pretty much all there was to it. Yeah, I just wanted to reiterate that exact fact. There's been a lot of talk since about how Everton performed and the red card and that type of thing. But I really want to highlight how great Saints were in this game. They, They made Everton look flat. I don't think it was a case of Everton being flat. I think it was... The performances, the back four were fantastic today. Romeo and James Ward-Prowse in the middle of the park were incredible. They broke up all the play. They were passing well. They're getting it out wide. Ings was dropping into different spaces all over the pitch. And Adams was bullying that defence. It was great performance. And hopefully moving forwards, that's our home form starting to look a bit better compared to last season. Already picking up wins. It's, it's a great sight for us Saints fans. Yeah, definitely a really good performance. And if you can carry on like that, there's good things on the horizon for you guys. Uh, The next game that we had, Wolves against Newcastle, was a game that actually literally put me to sleep on two occasions. I drifted off um, (laughs) twice. (laughs) It was that thrilling. Great goal from Jimenez towards the end and then obviously a last-minute equaliser from Murphy. So it sort of came to life in the last 10 minutes. But 
for the majority of the game, it was what we've seen from Wolves in quite a few of their games this season. The first half, just really boring. They'd do absolutely nothing and then expected them to come out with a bit more excitement in the second half and just didn't really. It took them right until the 80th minute to actually look like they were going to score at all, in my opinion. I was about to say, don't sound so excited about it. Um, <laughs> it, it was a very bad game to watch, but uh, yeah, I don't know if that's credit to Newcastle for nullifying Wolves and they're, they're a very deadly attack or whether it was just Wolves not turning up yet again, which again, I think you could probably argue both were on show in this game. But credit to Newcastle, they hung in there and, and they managed to get a point in the end. And they only had two shots on target in the whole game, or two shots in general. One of them just happened to be from this direct free kick, which I thought was actually a really poor bit of defending from Wolves. I was actually watching the game at this point and I saw Patricio setting up his wall. And I think when you have a right footer standing over a ball, which they must have done their research, they must know that Josh Murphy is a, a right footer. You should know that they've had the potential to bend the ball around the opposite side of the wall, but it didn't look like Patricio thought of that. And ultimately, it was a really well-executed free kick, but Patricio was was really caught out. And yeah, it costs Wolves the three points, really, after Jimenez broke the deadlock with a really, really nice goal. But an interesting fact about Wolves is that Jimenez scores almost three quarters of his goals in the second half. And so maybe that's the main reason for Wolves looking so boring in the first. Yeah, Wolves, I just don't think they've found the balance right yet this season. I'm really surprised that Traore is not starting. They really need to have a good look at the way they're setting their team out because at the moment, like Peter said, their first 45 minutes every game is unbelievably dull and they can't keep relying on players like Jimenez to pop up in the second half and get their goals because at some point, like this game, you're going to get caught out. You can't get away with it in the Premier League. So it's just not the Wolves team we're used to seeing. And they've still got very talented players all across the pitch. And hopefully, with a bit of jig and a bit of work, and in my eyes, I love watching Chori, so Chori on, they'll start opening teams up a bit earlier in games. Right, moving on to another team who have struggled to get going in the first half of games this season, that's Arsenal. Uh, we saw that again in this game, and they just, again, looked very, very shot-shy, if anything, because they just looked afraid to have a go. For an Arsenal team to only have four shots in the whole game is, is just unbelievable. And um, as, as an Arsenal, not a fan, but I end up watching a lot of games. And, and it's very interesting to see how they, they're playing this season, because yes, they, they were grinding out results at the start of the season by not playing that well. But worryingly, six games into the season, they're still not playing well, and they're still relying on this grinding out games kind of theory. And I, I think eventually you're going to get found out, and that's exactly what happened in this game. Maybe it was like, complacency in that they knew that Jamie Vardy wasn't going to play and so they didn't have that threat to worry about but as we saw at the end he came on and yeah won the game for Leicester. In terms of Vardy he has the most insane record against big six clubs. Um, Did a bit of research this week I was like gosh he doesn't have to bang him in so I wanted to know quite how much he does. So Liverpool in 11 games he scored seven goals and one assist. City in 15 games 11 goals one assist. Chelsea, 14 games. This is the the only team he really struggles against, apparently. Four goals and one assist. Still not bad. Spurs, in 13 games, he scored five goals and three assists. And then Arsenal, it's pretty much a goal a game. 11 games, 10 goals, one assist. It's insane. He he absolutely tears apart these so-called biggest teams with the best defences in the league. And what a record he has now, Arsenal must fear the sight of him. When he walks onto the pitch, they must be thinking, oh no, not him again. Because every single time, apparently he does it. Yeah, I knew he had a good record. I didn't realise it was quite that good. Those are really astonishing stats, aren't they? Considering the calibre of opposition he's playing against in those games. He is just such a great player, isn't he? And we've seen it year in, year out now for quite a long time. And he came off the bench again in this game to rescue his team and get the three points because they were in a pretty bad run of form. So that three points away at Arsenal is a huge result for them. Just going back to Arsenal, we spoke a lot in the early weeks of the season, didn't we, about how impressed we were with them maybe having that other side to their game of being able to you know, win games ugly or, or change their style up a bit and play in a way that we weren't used to seeing them play. I think maybe what we hadn't seen is what we're maybe starting to see now, which is that, yes, they can win ugly now, but they seem to have forgotten how to win pretty. It's almost like they've they've sacrificed their nice style of play for another style and it's not paying off necessarily so much now that teams have seen that. So, yeah, not great signs for them, got to be honest. And Arteta, I think, is also another manager who is 
in a precarious situation because Arsenal have put a lot of faith in him. And if, if they start to look like a team that are going to play boring football and not get the results, that's not something Arsenal fans will tolerate for a long time. Yeah, I just want to make a special shout out to uh, Alexander Lacazette in this game, who was flailing around all over the pitch the entire game, didn't do anything of note, made some really, really bad tackles, didn't look dangerous at all. I thought he was by far the worst player on the pitch and he stayed on for the whole game. And it just baffled me in terms of Arteta's game management that they didn't seek to bring on Enketia earlier or someone like Pepe to, you know, bring some pace and some inventive football to the to the play. But they didn't. And um, yeah, they, they got what they deserved in the end. I don't know what you guys think, but where Arsenal are now really lacking that creativity and they seemingly, like you said, lost that pretty style of football. Do you think, do you think it's time for Arteta to kind of swallow a bit of pride and let Ozil work his way back into that side? Cause they need someone and they need someone like him in that side, in my eyes. I think when you're paying someone 250 grand a week to play football and he's not playing football, I think someone of Ozil's quality and experience should be playing. Um, yes, he's not been on top of his game for a long time now, but I don't know whether that's down to his motivation or whether he's just been worn down by Arteta's management and doesn't really feel like he's going to get back into the squad. Games like this really highlight the lack of a creative playmaker for Arsenal. And I don't think it can be too much longer before you start questioning Arteta and why he's not playing. Maybe two or three more bad results, and I think the Arsenal fans will be calling Frozel back in. And just on that point, can can he come back into the team? I know, I know he's not been included in their twenty-five man Premier League squad, so is that is that something they can do? Can they bring him in? I have to admit that's something I'm I'm not aware of. Yes, I think the next available opportunity he'll be allowed to be registered is now January, because after the transfer window, you register your twenty-five players you want to play in the Premier League, and he was not one of those. So the only chance they'll get to do that again is in January now. Well, yeah. So even if the performances don't improve, then maybe even if he is the answer to the problems, they've maybe shot themselves in the foot by not doing that. You've got to think there's there's got to be more going on behind the scenes with uh, with Özil for him not to have included, as you say, he's on huge wages to have an asset like that just from a from a business point of view, from a like a financial point of view, it just doesn't make sense. I think Ozil, from what I've seen, he has whoever manages his PR does a fantastic job because he's always on top of things on Twitter and online and making sure that he gets his point of view across. So I wonder whether there's slightly more going on behind the scenes that we're just not hearing the full story because maybe Arsenal either can't say what's really going on or they're choosing to stay above the the sort of tit for tat and and just letting Ozil do his thing. But yeah, maybe maybe they could do with him, but it'll be interesting to see whether he actually manages to get himself back into that team at any point. I wasn't aware that he wasn't even in the 25 squad. I knew he wasn't in the Champions League one, but I find it insane that he's not in the Premier League one. That's that's ridiculous. You think when you have a player, like you said, on ridiculous wages, but also with the assists he has and the track record he has of breaking teams down in the Premier League, yes, he struggles in the big games, but against some of the smaller teams, like when they come up against teams like Fulham and West Brom and Burnley, you need that playmaker. Why are they? It's mind-boggling. Absolutely mind-boggling. Yeah, just slightly away from the Arsenal thing. One fact, a fun fact, I guess, to add to the end of this game is that uh, that was Leicester's first win at Arsenal since 1973. And um, I think it's such a shame that the fans couldn't have been there to see that game. I mean, they've been waiting 47 years to see their team win at Arsenal and uh, they're denied by COVID. So, yeah, real shame on that one. Yeah, moving on to Monday night's games, and we had Brighton against West Brom. We had given Brighton a lot of praise going into this game. The fact that they've been playing such attacking football going forwards without too much regard in terms of defence. But in this game, I guess they did start that way. But um, in the second half, they really lost their way pretty badly. And they were lucky to get out of this game with just a draw. They took the lead in the first half, quite fortuitously, really. Quite a comical own goal where uh, Branislav Vanovic smashed the ball off uh, Livermore and ended up in the back of the Brighton net. But then West Brom got the equaliser quite late on them. Yeah, they fully deserved their point and they were unlucky not to get the win. Yeah, I think it was the worst Brighton performance I've seen all season. They they really didn't turn up in this. And the, these games against teams like West Brom, they are not the games that you want to be failing to turn up in because those are the games that you should be getting the three points from for a team that's going to be hoping to push towards the top half of the table with the way they've played. And that's these are the games you've got to get those points in. So they'll be really frustrated with that. 
you said you said the own goal was comical. I thought the funniest thing about it for me was the way Ivanovic and um, Livermore barely even looked at each other after it happened. They both just sort of got up and walked away looking really pissed off at each other. I just thought it was, honestly, I, I thought it was hilarious, which I'm, I'm sure the, the Brighton fans didn't find it hilarious. But for me, it was one of the best moments of the weekend. Yeah, I don't have a huge amount to say on this game. I was disappointed with the way Brighton played and performed. But West Brom were, were poor but did well enough to get a result, which is good for them. And I think moving forwards, both teams need to lift their games a long way if they want to do bits in the Premier League, especially West Brom. They need, this is the type of game West Brom need to win. Matt said about Brighton needing to win this type of game to be moving up the league, but West Brom need to be winning against these, what you'd say is the smaller teams in the league, because they need the three points. One point here, one point there, it's not going to do a lot in the long term. Yeah, you know what? I've got to credit Johnson again in the West Brom goal. I thought he had a, a really great game in the first half and he was the one that kept all of the attempts out from Brighton. So I think without him, they could have been more than one down at half time, and that probably would have been them out of the game. So credit to Johnson. I think they have a, a really good goalkeeper there and I think he'll get them a lot of points over the course of the season. OK, so moving on to the final game of the weekend, um, Tottenham visited Burnley. And once again, it was that infamous partnership now of Son and Kane that combined for the one goal that wrapped up the three points for Tottenham. Their partnership this season has just been something else, the way they're combining. And interestingly enough, it's it seems to be Kane that's providing most of the assists in that partnership for Son, which is probably the the opposite way around to what we would have expected. But it shows really that they've, they've really worked out a way of playing together that works for them and works for Tottenham. I'm really, really impressed with the way they're playing. I'm, as you know, I'm not a, a huge fan of Tottenham myself, but I think Sometimes you've just got to sit back and, and applaud what they're doing and the way they're, they're managing to get the results. And, and those two really are just the talisman for that team at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, it's a scary thought if they manage to get Bale to slot in with them two and to link up really well. If they do, they're for sure going to have the most scary attack in the league because already at the moment, those two alone look terrifying. We've already felt it as Saints supporters and as West Ham supporters the danger of Kane and Son. So nobody's, no defence is going to be looking forward to trying to mark and block them two out of the game because they are scary. Kane's passing has come on tenfold. I didn't know he had this part to his game. I was not aware that he could bring this to his, this type of performance out of himself. And Son is seemingly there every single time. It's like he can read Harry Kane's mind. He's on the end of those balls every single time. Yeah, as good as they both were in this game, I thought Burnley did a really great job of neutralising them for the majority. Not only that, I thought Burnley probably should have been ahead by the time Tottenham got their goal. Um, in the first half, they had a lot of good chances, and it's the best I've seen Burnley play this season. I think um, Sean Dyke came out after the game and said, "It's the, we're getting there, you know, like this is a really good like, building block onto where we want to be. It was unfortunate for Burnley to concede from a set piece, because you'd think that that's somewhere they would be really strong. And winning those headers, but they again lost two headers in the, in the goal that they conceded. And yes, unfortunate really for Burnley because I think this performance probably warranted a draw. But credit where credit's due for for Tottenham, they got the goal, and it was those two linking up again. And I think at this point they're pretty much unstoppable. I mean, they've played some of the best teams in the league already, and it'll be interesting when they come up against the, the better defenses in the league like Liverpool and I guess Manchester City whether they can exploit them as well. But as of right now, I think you know you're looking at the the two best players or the most dangerous players in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, Sean Dyke obviously will be happy with the way they played for that, but he'll obviously be massively disappointed with the fact they didn't get anything out of it. They may be getting there, but they need to get there a bit quicker because we're, you know, okay, Burnley have only played five games against most teams haven't played six, but they're they're five games with one point. That kind of form is not going to get them anywhere up the table anytime soon. So they really need to start finding their feet because I I worry for Burnley this season. I think we all said it in our very first episode that we worried for them this season with the way they haven't really strengthened and they're, they're not looking great. I think, unfortunately, if they don't find their feet soon, it's going to be a really, really long, tough season for them. And the fact that Tottenham were able to come through with the three points is a huge boost for them because it was a, probably the, the toughest game they've had, I would say, in terms of being neutralised for the whole game. Most of the games we've seen, they've been on top for the majority of it. But this one, they, they really struggled and they came through with a goal right at the end. So... Really good signs for Mourinho as well after the disappointment of the previous fixture against West Ham. Yeah, in terms of Burnley, yes, it's a better performance by them. But like you said, already a long way off the fifth team in 15th. 
Manchester United. They're already six points off there. They already seem to be the top 15 teams in the league and then the bottom five, like Brighton. Yes, they've been performing, like they've looked pleasing to the eye, but they're still only on five points. And then the bottom four teams, West Brom, Burnley, Sheffield United, Fulham, take your pick out of them. I think at the moment, I would put my money on Fulham, Burnley, West Brom, all three to be relegated. I think Sheffield United have just about enough about them to up their game and get out of that zone, but it's all of them. It's going to be a long slog. And I think they might all become whipping boys of the league. Yeah, just moving back to the uh, incredible partnership that is Harry Kane and Jong Win Son. Um, we actually have our first listener question of the podcast so far. So th- thank you so much to Alex for sending this one in. Um, his question is, I read about Kane and Son's prolific partnership. Do you think that it has the potential to match other greats such as Henri and Bergkamp, Cole and York and Bruni van Nistelrooy? So yeah, I think this is a really good topic of conversation because right now, uh, these two do look like the deadliest strikers, especially this season, whether in Premier League history. I think that's, you know, what we'll try to answer now. But yeah, I think the argument's definitely there to be said that they probably could be on there. It's definitely a conversation that's worth having. Personally, I think it's a bit premature to be sort of talking about them in, in the same way as we talk about some of those partnerships that you just mentioned from the past. I think what we have to remember is that all of those partnerships ended up winning trophies. and. Tottenham haven't won anything yet and I think until they win something they will never be regarded as one of the best partnerships because at the end of the day that is what football is all about it's winning trophies and they can score as many goals as they want but if they don't get anything to show for it at the end of the season they won't go down in history as some a partnership that people really remember having said that I do have to give credit to them I think they they're playing fantastic Um, I saw a great stat earlier that Son alone has scored the same number of goals as Arsenal this season, which will Arsenal fans will be covering their ears in horror hearing that. Um, So yeah, between them, they're they're playing some fantastic football. They're scoring plenty of goals. I think there's a long way to go before we can start viewing them in the same vein as we do, you know, especially Rooney, Van Nistelrooy, players like that. They're just a different level, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with Peter on this one. They are a terrific strike partnership at the moment, and could get to that level. I think we're a bit early doors to say that they're the greatest of all time. I've seen people throwing it about. I think that's a it's a long way off that. They need to be doing it for seasons on seasons. But in fairness, Kane has been and Son has always looked dangerous and has picked up quite a lot of important goals and some incredible goals in, along the way. But he's never shown the consistency he's shown at the start of this season. This is incredible. In terms of the stat about Son scoring the same amount as Arsenal, does that mean Kane's probably assisted more than all the Arsenal players put together? Because I swear he's assisting every single Son goal there is. Like It's actually mad how well they link up. In terms of greatest ever, I think even in recent memory, the Suarez, Sturridge, Sterling partnership, that was an incredible one to watch. That was frightening, especially Suarez that season. He was sensational even after biting and getting an eight match ban or whatever it was <laughs> let's touch on that again the only two players who've actually combined for more goals than Son and Kane in Premier League history are Drogba and Lampard so I guess you could argue that you know Mourinho was the coach when when those two were in their prime and you'd think if he can get the best out of Drogba and Lampard maybe he can do the same for more well, Son and Kane and if he does you know I don't think they'll be a million miles away from a title this season but it'll be interesting to see. They'll both have to stay fit. And as we know with Harry Kane, keeping him fit is the main thing. So, yeah, I think it's crossed they do stay fit because they're great to watch. OK, just another talking point from the weekend. And I think it's only right to touch on, unfortunately, for Fulham fans. It's um, it's them based on their form and how poorly they've been playing this season. Like Angus has mentioned a couple of times already on this podcast, could they really be on course to get a worse points tally than what Derby did in 2007-2008? Um, I think this is a good comp- topic of conversation. I mean, at the moment, they're actually they've actually got less points than what Derby did in the in the same amount of games. So after six games, Derby had four points, and after six games, Fulham only have the one, picking up that draw at Sheffield United. So, I mean, if they stay on this track and they don't improve, they're actually going to end up with less points than Derby, which was eleven. Yeah, do you guys think that's a possibility? Well, the scary thing is, if they keep this average up, they're going to be what about seven points for the season. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a scary thought. But look at the teams they played. They played Arsenal. 
a good side. They played Leeds. Uh, again, a good side, but nothing. They've not played the, the Liverpools, the Cities, the Chelsea's, the Spurs. Like, I'd be worried for them. I'm genuinely worried for them. And I think the bigger the bigger issue for them is that the mid-table teams have all up the game this season, I think. I think if you look at teams like West Ham, look at teams like ourselves, Southampton, Everton, I think they all look better sides this season than they did last. So I don't see where they're going to get the points against those teams. Yeah, I think I think they're going to get a lower point than Derby. I really do. I generally believe it. I certainly think it's a possibility and I wouldn't be massively surprised to see it happen. The one thing that I think is different this time from what happened with Derby, just having a quick look at the, the Premier League table that from, from that season, the next worst team after Derby were Birmingham, who finished the season on 35 points. Um, and then Reading finished on 36 points. I'm just looking at sort of where we are in this season. And I, I just think there are, yes, Fulham are doing terribly, but I also think West Brom are doing terribly. And I also think Burnley are doing terribly because of the fact those teams are so bad. I see those as being opportunities for Fulham to pick up points against them. Even if they pick up zero points from every other team in the league, you can see them picking up maybe six points at least from those and then you know, a couple of draws against someone like Aston Villa or whatever and then maybe they get those points to just take them above Derby from 07-08. I think that that was one of the things that Derby really suffered with was they were terrible and also there weren't any other teams that season that were as like horrifically bad as some of the other teams that we've seen in recent seasons. Whereas this season, I think there's there's two or three teams that are really, really poor. Who and, and at some point, those teams have got to play each other and share the points out in some way or another. Yeah, it seems like a good time to go to the um, other question that we received this week from, from Rory. Um, this one is, Fulham clinched their Premier League spot at the expense of Brentford in the playoffs. Do you think that Brentford, had they come up, would have put up a better fight than what Fulham are doing so far? Um, I don't know if you guys have too much knowledge on on Brentford or how good they were last season, the players. Personally speaking, I, w- I watched a lot of Brentford last season, so I can probably vouch for a fair bit of their season. Um, personally, I think they would have done much better. I don't think they would have let go of players like Ollie Watkins or Ben Rama, and I think they would have kept the core of their team in the Premier League. And as, as you've seen already, I think Watkins is a Premier League player, and I think Ben Rama will turn out to be a really good Premier League player too. So in my opinion... Yeah, I don't think there's much of an argument there. I think they would have put up a much better fight than what Fulham have done so far. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think even just looking at where Brentford finished the league last season compared to Fulham, they were the better side throughout the Championship. They just got unlucky in the playoffs, which is always a lottery once you get there. Rarely ever the best team out of the playoff teams goes up. I also think Brentford did have a better core side than Fulham have now. So I think they would have adapted better to the Premier League. And I think they possibly would have been backed a little bit better. Obviously, Fulham came up not so long ago, backed their team with a lot of money, and then it didn't pull off. And I think this time, I think the owners were a little bit wary and didn't want to back this team quite as fully as they did last time. So I think that has played a factor in it. Also, Parker is still an incredibly inexperienced manager, and I don't think he's got the experience to take a team from the Championship to the Premiership and then perform at a good enough level to keep them up. Yeah, just on what you were saying about them maybe not backing the the team as much in terms of transfers this summer, I think part of that um, has to come down to the fact that they have invested heavily on building their new stand um, at their stadium. They've obviously been working on that over the course of the last season and then obviously all of their financial predictions on that and their funding of that will have been based on having a Premier League crowd coming in every week for the next season and now obviously they're not getting any gate revenue for the matches I think realistically they're in a position where they've they've spent out a lot of money committed to a huge amount of spending and couldn't necessarily back the team going back to what the original question was about Brentford the answer for me is 100% yes Brentford would definitely have been the better team in the Premier League they would have kept hold of those players undoubtedly because the appeal for players like Ben Rama and Watkins to leave would not have been there because they left to join Premier League clubs. If Brentford were a Premier League club, why would they leave? They already fit in well with that team. I think what really sums it up well for me, I watched the playoff final um, in a pub in Clapham full of Fulham fans. I sat on a table uh, next to a guy who was a diehard Fulham fan. And I remember him turning around to me after the final whistle. We'd been chatting throughout the game and I said, oh, you must be absolutely buzzing. And he was like, I am right now. 
but I'm also know that we've, you know, we're doomed now to a season of being the Premier League's whipping boys for the next 38 matches. And I was like, oh no, you can be more optimistic than that. And I think realistically, you know, he knew he'd watch Fulham play that season. He knew they weren't going to be a team that were going to compete in the Premier League. I think, unfortunately, if your own fans can see that coming before the season's even started, then it's not a good sign for you. Yeah, I think it's a real shame that Brentford couldn't quite get it over the line because unlike most of the Premier League teams that make up the Premier League this season, they've all played in the Premier League before. You know, they have that experience, whereas Brentford have never been at the top level in England, especially not since the Premier League era. And I think to have a new team like that in the Premier League, especially the brand of football that they play, would have been really beneficial for the Premier League as a product. Unfortunately, what we have on the opposite end now is is Fulham, who aren't exactly doing any favours to the Premier League, but I guess they are making games fairly entertaining when they play a good team and that they're going to ship a lot of goals and it'll be entertaining to watch. But yeah, I guess it swings and roundabouts on that one. But personally, I would have much preferred to see Brentford in the Premier League. Okay, right. Looking forward to this coming weekend's Premier League fixtures and making some predictions. Um, We're going to start at Molyneux, Friday night, Wolves against Palace. Yeah, so Wolves have been uninspiring in the last couple of games. and, And it's strange, really, because you would have thought these would be one of the teams to push on this season with this almost window of opportunity to, to push on onto the top four but I don't know they're faltering a little bit and it, it's strange and um, then you've got Palace on the other hand who you know been uninspiring but picking up results in in fairly decent games for them so I don't know if that's going to continue in this game um, I would like to think that Wolves are going to you know grind out another win but I do think it's going to be very unconvincing like the most matches have been this season I think they'll go one better than what they did against Newcastle and, and get a 2-1 win against Palace I'm going to add one more goal onto that, as I seem to do a few times in the last few weeks. I think this is going to be a draw, actually. I I can see it being tough for Wolves to break down Palace, given the way that they play, given the way Wolves play and given the way Palace play. I I can see it being difficult for them. Um, I do think their quality will show through in terms of their attacking uh, threat. But also Palace have shown that they can get the goals as well over the last couple of weeks, with Zaha still showing some pretty good form. Um, early on this season. I think he's contributed to a goal in every single game that he's played so far, except for one, which is pretty good signs for him. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to say it's going to be 2-2. Um, Wolves to get two and, and Palace to match them. Yeah, I really struggled over this one. I Very much along the same lines of what Matt said. That I'm going to go with 2-1 as well, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's a 1-1 draw, but I think Wolves are going to just have just a little bit too much. I think Palace as a team kind of suits the way Wolves play. They might start picking up a bit of form now. I'm going to go for a 2-1 win. Okay, moving on to Saturday's matches, um, starting with Sheffield United-Manchester City. Um, Sheffield United, again, better against Liverpool, but didn't get the win, didn't get a point even. And, you know, they're really struggling for points this season. I don't think that's going to change in this game. Uh, They're playing Manchester City, who, again, are in action in Europe in the week, so I don't know if that will count against them. And obviously they have Aguero now on... The reserves bench, he's not going to be playing probably for the rest of the year. If I was Man City, I'd, I'd let him rest up a little bit. I mean, it's difficult to look past City in this game. Surely they're the better team. I think Sheffield United will give it a real good fight, though. Um, again, I'm going 2-1, but I'm going 2-1 Man City in this one. I can't see this being a bit of a goal fest. I think it's going to be very much the very opposite. I think Man City are going to sneak a win. I think it's going to be a 1-0 win. Um, they've not quite got going yet. The free-flowing football's not there and Sheffield United aren't the type of team which is going to allow them to play that style of football. They're quite a dogged team themselves. So, just a sneak 1-0 win, sadly. Mm, I think Man City might do a bit better in this game. Obviously, De Bruyne wasn't fully fit for the game against West Ham. I think he is now fully fit, shown by the fact that he has been playing midweek against Marseille. I believe he's provided an assist in that game already as we speak. So, clearly... You know, back on form, back fit, back ready to play. If he starts this game, I can see it being one of those where Man City get a couple of early goals and then Sheffield can just not get their way into the game. I reckon it. I'm I'm erring between three nil and four nil. I'm going to go with three nil just to err on the side of caution because um, I can't always predict four nil wins. Yeah, I think Kevin De Bruyne is massively important for City, so that could well make a difference. Next up, we have Burnley hosting Chelsea. Burnley looking to build on a on a much better performance against Tottenham, and Chelsea looking to get back in the goals, and they dried up against Man United. Yeah, it's interesting because I think at some point Burnley will get going this season. Could this be the game? Potentially. Um, I think they might take the lead in this game, and then Chelsea will have to battle their way back into it. But I'm going to go for a one or draw, and I think Burnley are slowly going to start showing that they just about are Premier League quality. 
So yeah, I can't see Burnley scoring in this game. I think it's going to be a relatively comfortable 2-0 win for Chelsea. Could be dangerous and sad times for Burnley. If they can't, they need to start picking up points soon, but I don't see where it's going to come from because I can't see it happening in this game. Uh, yeah, so the last game I predicted a, a 3-0 away win. I'm going to do the same here and go for a 3-0 Chelsea away win at Burnley. I just Burnley just aren't doing anything for me this year. The, the idea of watching one of their games just really doesn't entice me. And I think I just can't see them scoring any goals in this one. Chelsea are starting to solidify at the back more than they were. And also we saw, OK, against Man United, they didn't score any goals. But we saw hints in the previous game that their new signings are starting to find their form in Werner and Havertz and Pulisic coming back from injury. I just think those players will have too much for Burnley and, yeah, 3-0. And moving swiftly on from that, the next game coming up, Saturday afternoon, 5.30 kickoff is Liverpool against West Ham. Liverpool, who've been doing pretty well the last couple of weeks, and West Ham, who've also been doing pretty well the last couple of weeks. Point against Man City. West Ham will be hoping that they can get something against Liverpool. I think if we've ever had a chance of getting something at Anfield, it, with our current form, it's the best chance we've had in a long time. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. You're probably starting to see a theme here that I tend to be fairly pessimistic with my West Ham predictions. Um, yeah, I'm going to go with a narrow victory for Liverpool. I think 2-1 it will be. Um, I can see us getting a goal early on and then Liverpool fighting back to get the 2-1 win, similar to the way they did against Sheffield United last weekend. Yeah, I think it's going to be a, a much more composed performance from Liverpool in this one. They, they kind of stuttered a little bit against Sheffield United, but you would think that eventually they're going to get used to playing without Van Dijk and they will have had a game in the week as well to get used to that. I think Alisson's now back as well. I think that's huge for them. Yeah, I, I don't think West Ham are quite going to make it a miraculous like four games that they should have lost and turn them into results. I don't think that's going to happen in this one. I'm actually going to go for a pretty crushing Liverpool win in this one, 3-0. Yeah, with Antonio potentially being out of this game I can't see where West Ham are going to get the goals I think that kind of will stifle your attack sadly Peter although there has been some good news for you Fabinho has limped off the pitch today so that already weakened defence is going to be even weaker than it was before however I can still see this being relatively comfortable I'm going to go for a 2-0 win for Liverpool right next up Premier League champions elect Southampton take on Aston Villa uh, on Sunday, um, looking to build on that win against Everton. And, you know, it was really impressive to, to see a team that I support play that well. Uh, so rarely happens these days that every time it happens, I'm, I'm kind of in shock. So if we can sustain this form for a little bit longer, I've seen our fixtures for the next couple of games. And, you know, it could go on for a good three, four more games before we play anyone that, you know, looks like beating us. So Aston Villa will be on a bit of a down after that, that thrashing by Leeds. And they really need a better performance in this one. But I'm hoping that we have a game plan like we did against Everton and, and can execute it against Villa. And, and I kind of, I'm kind of confident that we will. I'm not going to go for a convincing win because we don't tend to do that, but just a narrow 1-0 win. And it's the first time I predicted the Southampton win the season. So, uh, yeah, fingers crossed, I think. Yeah, I do think you'll get the win in this one, actually. As I said, I think Aston Villa's purple patch is over. Um, as you mentioned earlier, I have put a bet on Aston Villa to be relegated, um, just in case. And then I can claim I'm a genius at the end of the season if it happens. But yeah, I think I think you get the win. I don't think it will be a massive win. I'm going to go with 1-0. To finish off the results, I'm going to go with 2-1 for Saints against Villa. I just I think last season, we they were the team which we were most comfortable with playing. We seem to, apart from the one goal we scored against us. Um, going on to the team which Saints beat this week, Everton against Newcastle. I'm going to go straight on for a 1-1. I can't see that being a great game for Everton or Newcastle. Yeah, uh, this is an interesting game as well, actually, because Newcastle are one of those teams, like you said, in earlier weeks, they blow hot and cold. They turned up against Wolves and they would not turn up in other games. But yeah, Everton will be looking to bounce back. Poor result against us. I think they probably will be improved in this one. And they will need James Rodriguez and Calvert-Lewin, who backs their best, to get anything at Newcastle. I think Newcastle are much better at home than they are away. Actually, for Everton, I can't see them winning this one. I'm actually going to go for a 2 or draw. And I think Newcastle might score a couple in this one. I can actually see Newcastle winning this one, to be honest. Um, I think Everton, without Richarlison, and then obviously and now without Luca Dean as well, in defence, both on suspension still, it's going to be an issue for them. And yeah, Rodriguez didn't look fully fit when he played at the weekend. Obviously, they'll hope that he's back to more of his sort of natural fitness in this game. 
I don't know. This game's got a funny feel for me. It could be one that deceives a lot of people. And I, I know I sort of said this last weekend, but Newcastle do blow hot and cold. And if they turn up on this game, then I think Everton are there for the taking with the, the players that they're missing. See, so yeah, I reckon Newcastle to win that one, 1-0 I'm going to go with. And then the next game, uh, which used to be an absolute classic and has still been in recent years, Man United v Arsenal, Sunday afternoon. The kind of game that we'd all normally be in the pub with, uh, with our mates watching, but obviously can't do that at the moment. But this could be another really interesting one because we spoke earlier about how Arsenal are sort of playing a different style of football to what we've seen before. Solskjaer obviously clearly doesn't want to risk a heavy defeat, so he's been playing some cagey football against the teams that he's obviously concerned might inflict a heavy defeat after that Tottenham game. Could be another boring, cagey game, I'm afraid, and I'm, I'm a bit worried we might see a, a consecutive nil-nil from Man United in this. So, yeah, that, that's what I'm going to go for, nil-nil. I'm thinking the exact same lines, Peter. I think this is going to be a very dull, very boring and pragmatic game. I don't think either team are going to want to open it up at the fear of the counter-attack of both sides. They've both got great, pacey strikers. And I think both teams are not going to want to open it because of that. And as a result, we're all going to be bored stiffly. I couldn't care less about it. it. I have no interest in watching this game this year. The time for making safe predictions is over, I guess. For me, at least. Because I'm going at the complete opposite from what you guys said. Um, I really do think United need to start coming out of their cage a bit more. Yes, they've not shown it so far this season, but you know if they play the right players in the right system, they're going to get goals. And you can say the same for Arsenal. They've been goal-shy recently, yes, but on their day, they can be lethal in front of goal. So, yeah, I'm going out there, all out, 4-3 win from Manchester United at Old Trafford. That is quite some prediction. And if that comes true, then you will look like a genius, as I always like to say. <laughs> um, yeah, I can't see it, but, you know, got to be optimistic. I mean, if that is the case, then Angus and I will both feel very silly for saying that we're not interested in watching this game. But who knows? Uh, the game that follows on from that on Sunday evening, Spurs against Brighton. I can only see one result from this one, I'm afraid. I think another Spurs victory. But the way, yes, Brighton have played some good football, but the last the, the game this weekend, they look really, really average. Spurs just look like they're going to score in every game at the moment. So um, I'm going to go for a 2-0 victory to Spurs. Tottenham are probably the most informed team in the Premier League right now in terms of scoring goals. And uh, because Brighton are so susceptible to conceding goals, and they have done in most of their games so far this season, I can only see this going one way. And as, as much credit as I've given Brighton this season, I can only see Tottenham getting the win. Yeah, I'm going to go 3-1 Tottenham in this one. Um, I think they're just going to be way too good for Brighton's defence. The way Brighton play is going to play straight into Spurs' hands, and I think this is going to be a, a bit of a big result. I, I'm going to go 4-0. Spurs, I think Son and Kane are going to tear them apart. And I'm sorry, Brighton fans, but I can't even see you getting a goal against them. Right, moving on to Monday. And it's that thing we've talked about a lot this podcast. Fulham hosting West Brom. Probably the least enticing game of the weekend. Uh, I'm not sure I'll be tuning in for this one. It's probably on pay-per-view as well. So I think I'll give that a hard no. Um, if Fulham are going to get points, they've got to get points in games like this. You know, West Brom haven't been great either. You'd think Fulham eventually are going to get points, but I still don't back them to win this one, which is pretty sad. Uh, yeah, I haven't predicted one this weekend, so I'm going for a nil-nil. I also can't see this being an incredible game. Um, I've gone with a one-nil away win for West Brom. I, I think from what I've seen so far from West Brom, they've seen glimpses that they're the better side. And Johnson in goal, he is a very good goalkeeper, and I think he'll have enough to hold out the players like Mitrovic and Lukman. I think this could be a big win for West Brom, actually. One thing that I didn't mention earlier, but I, I found really interesting, is that uh, Dian Garner didn't feature massively in the last couple of games for them. And I, I think we all thought that he was going to have more of an impact for them over the first few weeks of the season. I think if he plays in this, Pereira plays in this, and they get their, sort of, get their rhythm going, Fulham are exactly the kind of team that, West Brom will be looking to play against at the moment and get their first win. A bit like we said about um, Crystal Palace being obviously probably really excited to be playing against Fulham last weekend. I think West Brom will view it the same way. And I think if they play the way they played against Chelsea, for example, they'll tear Fulham apart. And I can't see Fulham scoring any goals up the other end. 
So I'm going to predict a 3-0 win to West Brom. Yeah, poor Fulham. Um, finally, to see off the game week, we have Leeds versus Leicester. Uh, yeah, this is a difficult game to call now, actually, because Jamie Vardy's back in the fold for Leicester. I don't know if he's fit enough to start this game, but you would think that he's probably not going to feature in the week uh, in the Europa League just to make sure he's fit for this one because we've seen how important he is for Leicester and how they play their game. And then Leeds are coming off that, that really good 3-0 win against Aston Villa. Probably two teams who'd, who'd fancy a win in this game. Uh, I think Leeds have probably just showed me a bit bit more than Leicester have this season. And that's probably why I'm swaying towards Leeds to get a result. But it's going to be close. So I'm just going to go for a 1-0 Leeds win. I think this has the potential to be the game of the weekend. Leeds and Leicester both have terrific attacks. They're both capable of scoring goals at will. So I'm going to go with a really fun watch, but draw 2-2. I worry for Leicester here that the toll of four games within two weeks might catch up on them here, having to play the Europa League game on the Thursday. We've seen time and time again what that can do to teams when uh, when they've played that sort of fixture congestion, especially at the moment where we, we know Leicester don't have the biggest of squads. So, yes, they will rest some of their players, but they're not going to be able to rest everyone. There's going to be some players that are going to have to play both of those games and I think they're going to be tired. And Leeds, with the intensity of the way Leeds play their game, they're coming off a full week of rest, coming off a victory. They love to run, they love to press. There was a great moment in the Leeds game last weekend where I think they were 3-0 up and six players were pelting forward on the counter-attack to try and get a fourth goal. I don't think Leicester are going to be able to contain that and I think uh, Leeds are going to not run right over them, but I think Leeds will get a comfortable 2-0 victory in this game. Touching on the predictions so far and how we've all been doing, I don't know if anyone actually cares or not, but we figured we'd give you some kind of intel as to how we've done so far this season. Um, in general, it's pretty close. Angus has just edged it so far. And um, I'm in seconds and uh, Peter's bottom at the moment. But, you know, I think Peter's seen the error of his judgment in previous weeks and he's uh, looking to make big improvements this week, especially. Yeah, I mean, I started off with a at least one correct score every week for the first three game weeks and then uh, not a single correct score for the last three weeks. So, uh, yeah, that's gone well. Might have something to do with the fact that I love to predict teams to score four goals, which doesn't always happen. Um, but, yeah, I've definitely definitely got some catching up to do and need to start becoming more consistent with my predictions. Otherwise, one of you two is definitely going to run, run away with it. Well, all I'm going to say is a cream rises to the top. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see after the end of this game week coming up I'm going to say that you won't be top anymore and that's a ballsy prediction but Ooh, yeah well, there we quite, go quite a lot of points you've got to catch fighting talk there from Matt yeah I'm going to try and bring the fight this week on that note that brings an end to this week's 3PL podcast a massive thank you to everyone who keeps tuning in listening every week we really appreciate it and we hope you're enjoying the weekly content we'll be back next week for all the action from week 7 of the Premier League so make sure you tune in for that one and if you do want to ask us a question on social media, then make sure you're following us both on Twitter, YouTube and Instagram at 3PL Podcast and all those platforms. And yeah, we'll see you again next week.